Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 14. Four. Liam scanned the Team One caravan. It had to be here somewhere. The sword, the magic sword, the one the Team One had let him borrow once before at the last Battle of London. It had been his crowning moment of awesome, the signature element by which the world recognized him, and if he could get it back, he absolutely wouldn't name it Glamdering. He wouldn't. He totally would. Sean noticed him scoping out the gear as if he were a burglar and angled herself between him and the nearby truck. Are you looking for something in particular? She asked. Uh, no, I just, um, he faltered. It's a sword, isn't it? Liam jumped. How do you know about? My reports are very detailed, Shaw said dryly. And I was here last time, too. You want to borrow the sword again? Can I? Liam said, eager as a schoolboy at a candy store. Way to play it cool, he thought. It's yours if you want it, Shaw said. She pulled open a long olive drab box. The sword was there in a loose jumble of pole arms and other blades. It was this one, right? Liam snatched it out of the box before she could change her mind and took a few experimental swings in the air. It was exactly as smooth as he remembered, like butter in his hands. Can I keep it? Liam asked. Shaw scoffed. Oh, hell no, son. I'm only letting you put your hands on it because I believe even a prisoner gets a fighting chance. You'll be giving it back soon enough, among other things. Liam held the sword a little tighter. Just as long as we get to save the world first, he said. I don't care what you're planning for after. Because he didn't think Team One could touch a hair on their heads if it came to that. No sense saying it out loud, though. At least not where anyone from Team One could hear him. He wound his way over to Frances. She was staring at the patches of fur on the fountain, rolling her chair back and forth like she had too much nervous energy. Hey, Francis. He struck a pose with his new acquisition. Look what I've got. Isn't it great? She smiled at that, and he felt a giddy relief, until she said, what are you, 12? I'm at least 13, he said, with as much offended dignity as he could pretend to have. He struck another pose. Come on, Francis, you know this is cool. She pulled the knapsack off the back of her chair and began to rummage around in the bag. It suits you, she said. I'm just a hair disoriented right now. Liam lowered his sword. Yeah, hey, are you all right? 
Uno Team One would be here, huh? I'll be all right. It's just that I'd geared up for one kind of fight, and now we have another one right on its heels. Don't worry, I won't let them take you, Liam said. I'll have to climb over my cold, dead body before they lay a finger on you. Francis lit up. You say the sweetest things, she murmured. She took her glasses off and turned them over and over again in her hands. You know, Liam, I've been thinking that we should have a talk. Oh, yeah? Yeah, on the market for a test dummy. He shuddered. The answer is no. I'll find some other unsuspecting sod to do it. Francis smacked him lightly in the ribs. No, you dolt. It's just... At a time like this, you know, when you become so aware of how fragile the world is and how fleeting happiness can be, why are you talking like we're all gonna die? Liam crouched in front of her. Listen, it's gonna be okay. Tell me any time you need an ear and I'm happy to- Oh, for God's sake, just shut up for two minutes, Francis said, and she pulled him forward by his shirt to kiss him. Liam fell backward onto his ass. Oh, he said. He looked up at her, trying and failing to sort through the hundred conflicting thoughts he was having. Her eyes were wide, and he never knew her eyelashes were so long. I, oh. He pulled himself back onto his feet, kissed her fast, then said, I should see about the thing to get ready. He walked away as fast as he could without running, hoping nobody would notice just how many shades of red he'd turned. Grace felt like she was underwater. She could breathe, of course, not that she strictly needed to, but moving was a little more difficult than it should be. The air resisted her more thoroughly than usual. Her chest felt tight and heavy. Every now and again, a sensation would strike her, a jolt like electricity down her thigh, icy needles along her spine. Once, for just a single breath, her skin felt such heat and pain that she was surprised to find no marks when it passed. And Topof was busy. Perry gave her a strange look when these things happened, as if he could see what she was feeling, but neither of them spoke of it. Grace was grateful to him. She wondered what Antopov could possibly be doing, why he would want her candle after all this time. She wondered if this would be the day she would die, finally. Her wick trimmed and her flames snuffed a hundred years later than was just. Sal, at least, was too preoccupied to notice Grace's affliction because Perry was at the top of her agenda. Grace listened to them argue without comment of her own. Perry, you need to stay out of this, Sal said. Get out of the area. Hell, get out of town. You won't be able to keep things up. I can keep up, Perry said. At least go searching for Grace's candles and she won't. No. Perry, you're allergic to magic. This is the worst place for you to be. Sal, listen to him, Grace said. He can make his own choices. And I choose to stand and fight, Perry added. Sal looked miserably from Perry to Grace and back again. I just don't want you to die, she said. Neither one of you. All things pass, Perry said. He looked at the sky. Don't grieve before they have done so. There are signs and portents before a tornado hits. The wind grows still, then kicks up. Birds and small animals grow unsettled, and clouds move too fast across the sky. A magical tornado has its own signs and portents, too. The air grows heavy or too thin in patches. 
The sky grows rosy, and the shapes of things turn amorphous, uncertain. Grace took a sip of the matress's gift, just drops on her tongue, and then she could see the currents of magic forming too. Glowing tendrils weaving their way together. It was beautiful. The tiny army of defenders looked at one another for strength and raised their weapons, waiting. Manchu, Asante, and Francis waited on the far side of the block. Surrounding them was Team One, armed with crossbows, catapults, napalm, and an assortment of sharp and pointed melee weapons. It's coming, Perry said. He bowed his head as if in prayer. I can see it, Grace said. She watched the nexus of the tornado, tense, waiting for something to happen. And then black frogs boiled out of the ground in bubbles of mucus. The frogs had one eye or five or a hundred. They were the size of a dinner plate, a Labrador, a pony. One of them fixed its eyes on Sal, mouth half open. Inside it had rows and rows of sharp teeth. It lashed out with its tongue toward Sal. Grace burned to go faster and hurled herself toward the frog, aiming to grab its tongue and use the frog as some kind of morning star against the rest of them. But there was no burn for her, no extra boost of speed. She toppled toward the frog as if she were just an ordinary person, capable of only ordinary feats. The frog's tongue missed its target and returned to its mouth. Then Sal beat her to it, Sal and her magic sword stabbing the frog through its skull. The frog dissolved into a grayish slime, melding with the mucus it had hatched from. Grace froze, not quite able to process what had just happened. The burn hadn't worked. She was broken, she was slow. A shower of Team One's arrows fell around her, impaling an assortment of frogs. Sal had already moved on, slicing through the fray like an elegant kinetic sculpture. Perry appeared by Grace's side. Watch out! He pulled her away roughly. The scent of Francis's concoction rose up from the field where some of the frogs burst into stuttering flames, orange and blue, but somehow the wrong orange and blue. Grace strengthened her resolve. She wasn't fast, but she hadn't always been fast, and she still knew how to fight. She turned to the nearest frog, a smaller one, and kicked it. It flew in a wide arc and bounced off the statue's ankles. Another frog leaped on her, its teeth grinding into her shoulder. She ignored the pain and rustled it to the ground, fracturing its legs and tearing out its tongue before turning to her next opponent. The magic heightened around them, and everything was suffused with a brilliant pink glow. Some of the frogs were melding together now. They created a thing made of many eyes and teeth and dozens of whipping razor-sharp tongues. Grace's palms bled. She circled the monster. Sal danced in before her, sword flashing. Liam, too, seemingly ten feet tall. The monster roared and reached for them. Grace heard a noise, a singing, sweet and complex. A churning hole opened in the middle of the roundabout. The fountain that had stood there crumbled into nothing. Grace could see through the hole. It contained a universe, screaming and chaotic. The edge of the pit reached for Grace. It pulled her down, under, and then she was somewhere else. But she could still see the other world, the real world, the precious island she was trying to protect. She could see the worlds of magic surrounding it and suffusing it, the tornado howling and spinning. The whole of it spread in front of her, tiny and suddenly too comprehensible. She watched Sal and Liam destroy a monster and look around to see where she had gone. And there was Perry, a bright twinned shadow with strands of light streaming from every part of him. 
Pieces of the tornado were attaching to him as if he were a sponge soaking in magic. He collapsed, twitching and sick from too much power. A blow came like a kick to the stomach. She realized that one of the lines of magic was connected to her. She traced it to see where the other end went. Down, around, stretching and thin, then thicker. She found another place in London near Heathrow Airport, surrounded by its own whirlpool of magic. That, she knew, was where she would find her candle. Manchu saw Grace vanish into the chasm. He had waded into the fray, doing violence to frogs with the vigor of a man a third his age, though he would surely pay for it later. He was paying for it already. The air fizzed against his skin like he'd been doused in vinegar, and his visions split and combined three worlds, then one, then two. He couldn't be sure if it was his eyesight or if the world were truly splitting. Against that, what did a few sore joints matter? He pelted toward Asante. Shaw had allowed Asante and Francis to fight, but she hadn't freed them entirely. Asante's feet were still in chains, and some inventive member of Team One had tethered her to a catapult. Grace, Manchu said. Asante, you have to get her back. Francis threw another flask of her nasty invention, and somewhere a hundred feet away, more frogs burned. Next to her, the catapult rocked and a barrel of silver dust scattered over the field of battle. Scent burst over them, overwhelming. Cedar, then rotted citrus, butterscotch, sewer gas. Everything jerked sideways as if gravity had momentarily looked away. A new monster began to condense out of the air. It roared and caught flame, then lumbered toward a Team One artillery unit. They shot it with napalm, but what did it care? It was already on fire. Asante was staring hard at the place where Grace had gone missing. Oh, God, she said. I get it. I get what she meant. It's like the portals we travel through. I just need to. Asante raised the maitress's book for all the world like a queen, a god. The book's cover flashed white in the pink light. She began to speak in rolling words that echoed across the field and back again. She spoke in harmony with herself. Her hair and garments lifted. Her chains fell away. She raised her hands high over her head, though the book stayed before her, floating in the air. Asante clapped and waves of something flowed away from her. Silence fell like an anvil. And stillness. The flame monster had gone. The scents were gone. The world stopped splitting into twos and threes. In the heart of the roundabout, the open chasm vanished. Grace reappeared, lying upon a perfectly normal pavement, next to a perfectly ordinary statue. Its knees were no longer furry. Asante staggered. It's gone, she gasped. The magic, I can push it out. The pace of the tornado began to slow immediately. A few more frogs emerged from the streets, but their numbers were fewer and fewer, and they didn't fuse again. Sal helped Grace to the cordon. Her injuries were healing, though more slowly than usual. Perry did much less well. He was convulsing and babbling. Liam and Minshew carried him away. Sal watched their progress. He got to make his own choices, yes, but why did his options all have to be so bad? She shook herself. Asante would be able to help him far better than Sal could, assuming they all got out of this at all. 
And in any event, Sal could only deal with one problem at a time. The queue of crap to be dealt with had gotten much too long. Asante was bowed together with Francis, excitedly talking about the thing they had done. We can do it both ways, Asante said. The magic wants in, but we can bring it out of the system, too. This is... Oh, I have to study. This could save everything. This could be the answer we needed. She laughed, tears streaming from her eyes. Grace squinted at the ebbing heart of the tornado. It's almost done, Grace said. The glow is fading. So now do we... Sal's fingers tightened on her sword. Only one way to find out. Manchu called over to Shaw. Tell me, he said, are you really going after Asante now? Are you going to drag us to the Vatican in shackles now that you see what she's working on? And, he motioned at Perry, what we're willing to sacrifice to save everyone else? Is your justice worth more than the chance to save the world? Shaw took aim with a crossbow and fired. The frog she targeted splintered into pieces of ice, skittering across the pavement. Her face was troubled. Did she really... Hmm. Sal spoke again. Please, Shaw, you know we're not on the wrong side of this. And we're working to preserve everything we know, even Asante, especially Asante. Shaw lowered the crossbow to turn her gaze on Minchu. Father, I have my orders, she said. You're not going to get me to say I don't intend to follow them. And Asante can't hide from the Vatican forever. Before Sal could chime in, Shaw raised her crossbow again, sighting along the street. Still, she said, I'm awfully busy with cleanup duty here. It's very chaotic, isn't it? It would certainly be a shame if you disappeared in all the confusion before we had a chance to pin you down. Thank you, said Manchu. We won't forget this. You'd better forget it, Shaw said. This never happened. Manchu, I want all of you to take Perry home and see if you can help him. Sal said, please, anything you can do. Her voice cracked. I have an idea, Asante said, breathless. I think I can bring him back from this. Grace, while well, they're busy, let's look for your candle, Sal said. There's no time to waste. I know where it is now, Grace said. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Five. The airport hotel was soulless, as most of them are, a desperate assemblage of concrete, industrial carpeting, and mass-produced light fixtures thrown together in an artless way as if to acknowledge that nobody would ever choose to stay there. The place was the living embodiment of unpleasant necessity. The lobby was deserted. Not even a clerk at the desk if they had wanted to check in. Then again, hi, do you have a guest who brought in a big candle? We need to steal it back from them. Probably wasn't the sort of question the concierge was prepared to help them with. How do you know what room to look for? Sal asked. Grace stared up at the far corner of the building. I just know, unless they've moved the candle, which could mean he's bringing it. Sal moved toward the stairwell. Let's make sure that doesn't happen. They crept up floor by floor, going slower and slower the closer they came to their destination. Grace was impassive, as if she were in exactly this amount of peril every day, but Sal felt a stew of emotions on her behalf. Mostly terror, in the flavors of fear of mortality, uncertainty, and confusion. Grace led Sal to the 15th story and into a maze of indistinguishable hallways. There were no windows, which lent the whole endeavor the feeling that it was taking place in a bubble where time did not pass. They should be so lucky. Finally, Grace stopped at a room marked 15304. She pressed her palm to the metal. This one, she said. Sal knocked, and Grace flattened herself against the wall beside the door, out of range from the tiny fisheye peephole. At first, there was no answer. What if nobody is inside? Sal murmured. Do you think we could? The door slammed open. A disheveled man peered out at her, red under his beard and stinking of vodka. What? He shouted. I asked not to be disturbed. Grace peeked past Sal and saw his face with deep furrows down one side as if someone had scratched the skin away and it had never regrown. And Topov, she hissed. And then everything happened at once. Grace pushed past Sal into the room and tackled on Topov to the ground. She punched his face twice. He groaned and curled into a ball. A menagerie of wax creatures descended on Grace, beginning with an alligator snapping at her. Grace wrestled its snout closed. Sal slipped inside and let the door close behind her. She finally got a better look at the room. The walls were dripping with streamers of wax, and so was the furniture. And Grace's candle was indeed here, burning as steady as ever. It was surrounded by a circle of something rust-brown and powdery, dried blood, perhaps, and little dishes filled with chalk, garlic, metal filings, something that looked like saltines. Sal dodged a wave of wax, pulled herself onto the sideboard, and dove toward the candle. She pinched out the flame. The room went still. The tableau was a strange one. 
Grace grappling with an indistinct wax monster nine feet tall and engulfing half her body. On top of crouching, his hands together at the palms and wide at the fingers, as if he were directing the movements of the wax. He had a snarl on his face and Sal studied it. It looked like vengeance to her and like suffering. She turned around and discovered a wax tiger. Its jaws were stilled inches from where her head had been when she snuffed out the candle. She shuddered. If she had taken just another three seconds longer, things would have turned out very differently. Zell spent several minutes thinking through her next steps. It took much longer than that to follow through, and by the time she was done, the sun had long set. She carved apart the animals, then carried the pieces to a series of dumpsters outside. She all but mummified Andropov himself and duct tape. She couldn't be sure that he would stay trapped. She wasn't sure if he could transform and shape the way his animals could. But Grace couldn't, and that probably meant... She ordered up room service, a burger and fries with extra soda. It had been a long day, and her blood sugar was running low. She'd get through this next part much better if she took care of her body. Finally, when she felt ready to face whatever came next, she lit the candle. Antopov and Grace both woke up. Neither one of them asked any questions. They both knew what the flicker in existence meant. They had both been through it before, more times than she could count. Let me free, bellowed Antopov. I have powerful allies, and they will come looking for me. They will swear vengeance on you. We should kill him, Grace said urgent. He's the one who cursed me. Kill him before he can. We aren't an execution squad, Grace, Sal said. And I think... I think we could have a very interesting chat. She turned to Antopov. You're trying to break the curse, aren't you? Antopov quieted. Why would he care? Grace snapped. Because he's bound to the candle too, Sal said. Aren't you? Antopov looked away. And he's never had possession of it. Sal looked at his pitiful, filthy garments, his unwashed hair. You've been waking and sleeping with no warning this whole time, haven't you? One minute you're there, and the next... She drew her finger across her throat. Is that true? You've been like me all this time, but with no control over when you wake? Grace laughed in his face. Well, that's something like justice then for a murderer like you. Antopo flinched. Justice, he said. There is no justice in this world, only suffering. The weak and the strong, and the strong take from the weak. Which one are you? Asked Sal. I used to be strong, he said, but now I am a puppet for my masters. He spat on the floor. I have regrets, he said. Each time my eyes open, I curse myself for being greedy for trying to climb too high. Who are your masters? Grace frowned. Everyone in Shanghai is dead now. The bureau is gone, so who? A Swedish family, said on top of, you would not know of them. The Angstroms. Sal and Grace exchanged a look. How do you know them? Antopov's lips twisted like he'd tasted a lemon. They found me after Shanghai, he said. I had been friendly with Zilla. A charming woman, cold as a glacier and given to enjoyable displays of excess. And they looked after you? Grace asked. Like the nuns did with me? Laundry, timekeeping? They did nothing, Antopov said. They hid me in a shack in the mountains, hundreds of miles from the nearest village. 
I would wake there, hungry and alone. They would bring their children to see me, a lesson in greed and temperance. The wild man who cannot live and cannot die. But something changed recently, didn't it? Sal said. She circled on top of her arms crossed. You found yourself awake more and more, and then all the time. So finally you could leave, if you trusted it. On top of startled. How do you know? Ingrid came to me and she said she had traced the candle, that she had found a way to break the curse for a short time, but she was lying, said Grace. The reason you're awake is because I choose not to sleep again. Antopov nodded slowly. Yes, he said. Once I obtained the candle, I tried to break the binding, but yes, there would be no way for her to do what she had said. What are we going to do with him? Grace asked. We can't just let him go free. Can't we? Sal asked. I wonder. On top of, what would you do if we let you go? And we promised you would never sleep again. On top of was wide-eyed now, full to the brim with a suppressed longing. Why would you do this for me? Why would you not strike me down as I stand? Grace snorted. That's a good question. You tell us. I cannot die if you live, on top of said. He shrugged, and in that shrug, he conveyed volumes. Shit, Sal said. That's a problem either way. Antopov hesitated. Tell me, do you know what they are planning? The world is dying, Sal said, and the Engstroms are trying to kill it faster. We don't like killing things so much. The Russian was silent for a long while. His fingers twitched and his lips made the shapes of words. Finally, do you swear that the candle will always burn? Grace nodded. I'm not changing my mind. Then go to Greece, he said. Set me free and visit the Oracle and we will count ourselves square. He looked Grace in the face for the first time. I am sorry, agent, he said. More sorry than you could ever know. Perhaps one day I will find a way to save both of us. Later, Grace curled up in an armchair, staring at the flame of her recovered candle. You still don't have to do this, you know, Sal said. Grace didn't respond. I know you told Antopov you would, but if you feel like you're wasting time... Sal trailed off. It's fine, Grace said. It's just really clear that coping with all of these things you used to avoid is bothering you, Sal said. You don't have to. We don't have to. I don't want you to waste the time we have together. Grace sighed. She went to the mirror and her collection of pots and vials and tubes. Back in Shanghai, she said, I once bought a little bottle of new perfume. Chanel number no. five, in fact. It was very expensive to get my hands on it, and especially so since I didn't make very much money. But I bought it anyway. Sal blinked at this change of subject, but Grace was usually reluctant to talk about her youth and about China, and she wasn't going to stop this rare revelation just to prolong an argument. Grace went on, dabbing cold cream on her face and then rubbing it in to dissolve her makeup. Her eyes were unfocused from looking into the past, seeing something Sal couldn't see. I cherished that bottle. It smelled so beautiful that I was afraid to use it up. So day after day, that little bottle waited, hidden in the back of my wardrobe. 
I tell myself I was saving it for something, for the right thing, that I would know when it was time to use it. Her fingers trace the pulse points where she would have put perfume, her wrists, her neck, her heart. But I never used it at all, not a single time. And then you know what happened. On top of, Sal said, so you never got to use the perfume you were saving? Grace, we can buy you a new bottle of perfume. We can buy you a new bottle of Chanel Number no. 5. They still make it. I can run to Boots right now, and I've tried, but it doesn't smell the same. Grace shrugged. Maybe the formula has changed, or maybe I never had the real thing at all. How would I have known? Sal sagged with disappointment. Oh, sorry. Maybe we could... She tried to think of another solution, but nothing came to mind. You're missing the point, Sal. Grace began to wipe the cold cream from her face with a dampened washcloth. The point is, if I'd known I was going to lose my chance, I would have worn it every day, no matter how ordinary. Not just for festivals, but while I was filing reports, while I was doing the laundry. Her lips twitched. Well, sending out the laundry for someone else to do. Grace set the washcloth down and cupped Sal's face in her hands. Sal, the perfume is you and me. I learned the lesson, and I'm not going to forget it. It doesn't matter if I'm doing laundry or punching monsters or reading a book. As long as I get to live this life where you and I are together, I may not enjoy every fleeting second. I know I won't. That's life, and none of us gets to be happy all the time. But none of that time is wasted. Oh, Sal managed. I, Grace, I love you, too. Asante waited until sunrise, and then she threw open the blinds of the library to let as much sunlight in as she could. Perry was laid out on his cot in the brightest beam of sun she could find. His convulsions had continued through the night, and now he was still. Not because he was recovering, she thought, but because body and spirit had separated too far. Perhaps she could do something about it. It was a last-ditch effort. And there was a risk that what she was about to do would sever that connection for good. But it was clear that it would snap before long, even if she did nothing. Well, fortune favors the bold. She took the matress's book again and tried to do whatever it was she had done that had wrung all the magic out of a single roundabout in London. As she spoke the words, she felt something flowing through her, rhythmic and strong, as if she were a buoy on a current she could not see. The world grew unbearably bright. Perry moaned. Asante clapped her hands, and Perry's clenched hands fell open. His mouth opened, and he let out a long sigh. For a long moment, Asante was convinced she had killed him. Then Perry opened his eyes. Asante, I'm still here. Oh, thank God, Asante said. She embraced him. I'm so glad you're not dead. Me too, he said. But I'm very tired. What did you do? Rest, she said. We'll talk about it later. I have a lot of questions for you. A flash of motion captured her eye, something small and close to the ground. There were still pieces of silver on the floor, scattered under the shelves where Liam had dropped them. She knelt down and touched one. The crucifix had come alive. Its arms twisted and split like branches, and then it grew still. Asante picked it up and held it to the morning sun. 
Aren't you curious? She murmured. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. There's something weird going on with influencers right now. I'm a little freaked out. They just get everything they want. Everything's a little too perfect. Their smiles are a little too straight. They're using filters I can't find anywhere. I know what I'm about to say might sound a little unhinged, but I think it might be witchcraft. At least, that's what Jenna Clayton thought right before she went missing. We're excited to introduce a new show from Realm, If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It, starring Oscar-nominated actress Gabourey Sidibe. When a Black writer goes missing, a white podcast host with a savior complex takes up the cause of finding her and collides with a coven of influencers she suspects are responsible. This show is a little bit of the craft meets Mean Girls meets Get Out. Learn more about If I Go Missing, The Witches Did It at realm.fm and be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>